A warm greetings everyone and welcome to the Black Book Show on Galaxy Radio, Galaxy Afiri Station, the only de-brainwashing station. I'm McConnell Sankofa, I'm the host of the Black Book Show, as well as being a host of the Black Book Show, I'm also author of the books The Rise of Rastafari, Resistance, Redemption and Repatriation, Life in Gambia, The Smiling Coast of Africa, and my latest book, How to Market and Sell Your Book. A guide for beginners. If you're new to the Black Book Show, the Black Book Show is a show on Galaxy Afiri Station, uh, which runs every other Saturday uh, between 6 and 8 p.m. UK GMT time, that is. And it's a platform where I feature different interviews with authors of African heritage from around the world. We have a great show planned for this evening. In this episode of the Black Book Show, I'll be speaking with authors Simon Hudson. Simon Hudson, he's the author of the book. History Through the Black Experience, Volume 1 and Volume 2. Lovely Lundi, she is the author of the book, Feel, Heal and Enjoy. And Julian uh, Mims, he's author of the book, Sandy Black and the Seven Giants. I am now joined with Simon Hudson, who is the author of the books, History Through the Black Experience, Volume 1 and Volume 2. Welcome, Simon, to the Black Book Show. Please start by giving the listeners a brief introduction about yourself. Now, first, may I just say thank you for having me on your show. Thank you very much. As I said, my name's Simon Hudson. I was born in the early 60s in Southampton. So for some people, my, I may appear to be an old man. I was born in 1964. I have... Well, I should say I had two brothers, and I grew up with two brothers and six sisters. One brother um, unfortunately died about four years ago and my father died about 10 years ago. My mother's still alive and she still lives in Southampton as do two of my sisters, they still live in Southampton. I grew up in the black community and the black community then was the New Testament Church of God, sort of evangelical Pentecostal church. And so it did shape my world, as with many people at that time, especially in a city like Southampton, I was the only black person in my class, although at secondary school, there were a maximum of three black people in our year group, all of whom were male. Um, But if I remember my secondary school, I think in total, while I was there, there may have been a a grand total of six black people while I was at secondary school. So my identity was something that I really needed to understand and make sense of rather than trying to fit into the crowd, which would have been quite easy. I, academically, I made my way through the school system. I eventually achieved my O-levels, not GCSEs, my O-levels and my A-levels, and went on to study to become a teacher. And in 1987, I started teaching. I ended my career as a teacher after 33 years having taught at the same school, the subject being religious studies. And um, 
just before lockdown, I decided to put pen to paper. Well, not pen to paper, but I started typing what eventually became known as History Through the Black Experience, Volume 1 and Volume 2. Now, obviously, there's a lot more to me than that, but that's an abridged sort of biography of my life. Okay, so let's go on to talk about your book, History Through the Black Experience, Volume 1 and Volume 2. What was the process that led to those books being written? It started out as a calendar. What happened on this day in Black History and Achievements? And with, with any calendar, January the 1st, right through to December the 31st, the calendar is for any year. It's not just for 2022 or 2023 or indeed 2021 or 2020. People love the calendar and the calendar is very popular and sells well. But I kept getting exactly the same comment. Here are all the headlines. Where are the stories behind the headlines? Eventually, I thought to myself, I know I want to write this, but it just seems to be a huge task way beyond me. But I did eventually sit down and start typing. And the end result was volume one and volume two. And the reason why you have two petition to help end enslavement in the British Empire, one or 2020. People love the calendar and the calendar is very popular and sells well. But I kept getting exactly the same comment. Here are all the headlines. Where are the stories behind the headlines? Eventually, I thought to myself, I know I want to write this, but it just seems to be a huge task way beyond me. But I did eventually sit down and start typing and the end result was volume one and volume two and the reason why you have two volumes is volume one is January through to June, volume two is July through to December. When I was talking to publishers, one publisher, Europa Publishers out of Rome, said we can publish the book as a whole, just one single volume, but because of the size it would cost £60 for people to buy. And I thought, wait a minute, wait a minute, no one is going to pay £60 for this book. Well, a few people might, but um, the people I wanted to buy the book would have serious concerns about forking out £60. So it ended up being in two volumes. And what I've done throughout the book is I've linked characters, events, topics, genre, throughout the book. So if I'm writing about, say, Martin Luther King, when he was born in January, I say, go and see April the 4th, part two of Martin Luther King, and that links to when he was assassinated in 1968. And then I say, go and see August the 28th, 1963, which links to when he gave the I Have a Dream speech. And that August the 28th section will be in volume two, July through to December. So you have volume one and volume two. Now, 
Is Volume 2 an extension of Volume 1, but with more topics which reflect the same overall subject of history through the Black experience? Is that correct or not? No. What Volume 2 is, is it's just a continuation of Volume 1. So it doesn't go into any more detail. All it looks at is what happened on July the 1st, what happened on August the 1st, what happened on September the 1st, right through to December the 31st. Now, some of those events will stand alone. Some of the biographies will stand alone. But what I've done is I've linked the topics up. So if I'm talking about Eddie Paris, Eddie Paris was the first black person to play international football for Wales. Now, his story will stand alone on a particular date. Now, that date could be when he was born. It could be when he died. It could be when he was picked to play for Wales or made his debut for Wales. I will also, at the end of that story, write about Andrew Watson. Now, Andrew Watson was the first black person to play international football in Britain. He played for Scotland. And his story may be, may take place in, let's just say, May, May the 1st. That could have been when he was born, when he died, or when he made his debut for the national side in Scotland. And so the stories, by and large, exist on their own on a particular date. So each day you will discover a different story, a different topic, a different genre. And that just continues through to volume two, which covers July through to December. Well, obviously, there's a lot of research that's gone into the book. Uh, how long did it take you to write this book? And what motivated you on your journey to you know, writing this book? OK, let me, let, me, let, me, let me try and take the motivation first of all. I was 10 years old and I remember writing two of Martin Luther King's speech, not writing, painting two of Martin Luther King's speeches on my wall. And one of the speeches started with the words, our method would be that of persuasion and not coercion. We will say to people, let your conscience be your guide. But importantly, that speech ended up with the words. And when the history books are written, they will say they lived a great people, a black people who injected new meaning and dignity into the veins of civilization. So as a 10 year old, I was already focusing on what I wanted to do how I wanted to think, where I wanted to end up. And so all those years later, and in the intervening period, I had acquired a huge um, book collection and as a result, wealth of information. And having retired, I found that I could actually answer the question when it came to the calendars and put down and write down the stories behind all the headlines. Now, that was a Herculean task, and but it one thing led to another, quickly snowballed, there was a domino effect, and before I knew it, 18 months later, 
I've completed all the research and the writing. Does your books focus on, you know, black history? Is it predominantly UK, USA, or does it cover black history relating to people um, and events in other countries? Effectively, it's impossible to ignore the American narrative, but I didn't want to go down the route of the American narrative. Neither did I want to dismiss the Malcolm X's. I didn't want to dismiss the Rosa Parks the Frederick Douglass, the Booker T. Washingtons, the Martin Luther Kings. I wanted to build on them. So the books cover the last 500 years of our experience, focusing heavily on the Caribbean. And when I say the Caribbean, I mean the French, Dutch, Spanish, as well as English-speaking Caribbean. It focuses on North America, Central America, and South America. So as you're aware, Brazil has the largest black population outside of Africa. But for the vast majority of us, we only know about football. And even when it comes to football, we only know about Pele. I also wanted to include the black narrative, our history of the black presence in Europe, focusing clearly, heavily and unapologetically heavily on the black presence in the UK. But I spread even further, wanting to look at the Black presence in places like Fiji, the Solomon Islands, and Papua New Guinea, who hardly ever get a look in. And I also embraced the Aborigines in Australia, who self-identify as Black. So it's a huge view of the Black presence in the world, on the world stage all starting from the black countries sub-Sahara, in sub-Saharan Africa. And so obviously I couldn't cover everything. And at the back of book one, I admit that after all of this, something like 400 pages later, volume one, I've only started to scratch the surface. But it's fascinating. And the reason why the vast majority of the history only goes back 500 years is I needed to be able to identify not just a year, not just a month, but when something happened on a particular day. And so that was quite a challenge and quite demanding. Once you go beyond 500 years, you can actually identify a particular day, but it becomes quite rare and quite difficult. What has been your biggest surprise in relation to the books? To be quite honest, how little I knew. I've already mentioned the American narrative, and for the vast majority of us, the 20th century was clearly America's century, and we all grew up knowing the American civil rights struggle, and the profile of black Americans. I didn't know anything about Nigritude, which looked at the French speaking black population around the world and people like um, Amy Cesar, 
Leopold Senghor and these amazing, incredible black thinkers from other non-English speaking countries. And so there was so much to discover, so much to learn. Right up through to today, Philip Imigwali, one of the fathers of the internet, the Nigerian Philip, Philip Imigwali, who now lives in the USA. I'd never heard of him. And I thought that was a shock. I wanted to put someone like Albert Latuli, who for the vast majority of people remained quite, well, many people actually know very little about him, although they would know that Desmond Tutu and Nelson Mandela followed him to receive the Nobel Peace Prize. But we're familiar with Desmond Tutu, we're familiar with Nelson Mandela winning the Nobel Peace Prize, but not as many people are that familiar with Albert Latuli having won the, the Nobel Peace Prize years before. Then, then, then there was something like um, the Berlin Conference. I was totally oblivious of how this conference lasted for over a year and the white powers, European powers, Russia was invited, Austria-Hungary was invited, the Americans were invited. They sat down and for over a year, they thrashed out how to avoid fighting each other as they carved up and colonized Africa. Now, again, I found it quite frightening that I knew so little about the Berlin Conference. And so there was an awful lot for me to discover. And what I, for, 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 for me, the learning process and what was a surprise was putting flesh on the bones. Because although I thought I knew a lot, I actually only had the basics, the basics in place. So I knew about the Congo, but I really didn't know about how King Leopold ended up getting the Congo after the Berlin Conference. I didn't know about Alice Seeley Harris and how it was her photographs that showed the world the atrocities that were taking place in the Congo. And so there, there was this constant learning process, which I felt as a, a former teacher was, was perfect for me. What has changed in your head, your thoughts and hopes for the books from when you were writing and now that the books have been on sale? It's trying to get more of our brothers and sisters reading. W.E.B. Du Bois refers to the 10%. And at this moment, it still feels as if we still operate with the 10%. And what I mean by that is you may be familiar with the derogative saying, if you want to hide something from a black man, write it in a book. But unfortunately, there's an element of truth there. And sometimes I just want to say to people, 
that you've got to read, you've got to read. It opens up your mind, it opens up your imagination, it creates and manipulates and builds and organizes your thought processes. Because it's one thing writing the book, but it's another thing trying to get that book into people's hands. It's another thing when the book is in people's hands to get them to open it and to get them to engage. And that's one of the reasons why I wrote it as I did in the calendar format, to encourage people to, all they have to do is read what happened on January the 1st, and then the next day read what happened on January the 2nd, then the next day read what happened on January the 3rd. And very rarely does a day cover more than three or four pages. And if you are the sort of person who can consume a book within a few hours or a day or a week, then what I've, what I, what I've done is I've made a lot of connections. So if there is a particular biography or an autobiography about a, an individual or a specialist book about a particular event, I often, I frequently mention that specialist material so that people can go off and delve in a lot deeper they can do a lot of extra research they may be encouraged to actually buy that particular book even if a documentary is being made about that particular event or that particular person or a film I frequently reference the documentary and film to encourage people to go on a voyage of discovery to find out a lot more but my aim at this moment in time is to knock on as many doors as is possible and hopefully get those doors to fling open and for people to discover the multitude of stories starring our people, the huge number of narratives starring our people. You know, Shakespeare said, the whole world's a stage. And I said, well, well if the whole world's a stage, where are all the black players where are all the black actors? Where are all the black directors? Where are all the black producers? And I often hear a lot of people say, our stories are being hidden. I hear a lot of people complain that there's not enough on radio, there's not enough on TV about us and our history. But the fact is, all you've got to do is listen to Radio 4, BBC Radio 4, for a whole week. And in that week, you'll be guaranteed to get a dozen stories that are rooted in black history. The problem is, the stories are not being hidden. Too many of us are just choosing not to discover them. We want them to be placed on our lap, open up the book, and if possible, get someone to read to us. And I just want to move on from that 10% so that it's 20, it's 30, it's 40, it's 50, it's 60%. In the end, we'd be looking at a great people, a black people who injected new meaning and dignity into the veins of civilization, where only 10% didn't read where reading was the established norm where that interest, that voyage of discovery was commonplace. 
And, you know, that's, that's where I'm at now, really trying to get out there and say, you know, when, as a vendor, when I have my stalls at a whole variety of events, I've literally got to call people over because there are a number who will see books and just look the other way. And, uh, but when, when, I, when I call them over and when they see the book, all of a sudden their eyes light up and I can see them discovering this world of wonder. And, 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 and that's exciting. And that's where I'm at the moment. Why is it so important that we as black people know our history and what impact do you want the book to have? Well, paraphrasing Malcolm X, if you have no idea where you come from, you will have even a less idea or little control of where you are now and indeed where you want to be. So, for instance, if you look at the Holocaust, the Jewish community rightly understand the need to remember and they continuously say lest we forget whereas i talk to a number of individuals who say oh i don't want to know anything about slavery and i'm thinking yes we need to own our history because if we don't own our history other people will start to own our history and then we complain about appropriation. Then we complain about being edited out. Then we complain about being hidden or being redacted. It's so important to own your past, to inform where you are now and to direct where you want to be. And so when you look at a topic like slavery, the number of heroes that emerge from that dark, bloody period you know, there can be some simple heroes such as William Still who worked on the Underground Railroad trying to help people escape enslavement but he kept a meticulous note of everyone who passed through his particular station so meticulous were his notes that one particular person person A Ten years later, person B passed that station and he said, do you know person A? And the person, person B said, that's my brother. And he was able to reunite them with his meticulous administration. And then, then, then you have people like Henry Box Brown. Henry Box Brown, very simple but ingenious character. He bought a crate put himself in that crate and then posted himself off to freedom, although he spent 24 hours upside down on his head. But nonetheless, he was able to escape enslavement and create a new life for himself. He spent over 20 years, I believe, in the UK. And there are just so many stories of heroes who were able to overcome adversity and turn what was darkness into the most amazing achievement and light. And we don't allow that if we don't take hold of our history. And so we look back and we allow some white character like Tarzan 
to enter the jungle and all of a sudden become lord of the jungle. And you're thinking, no, that would never happen if we knew our history and if we were writing our history rather than ignoring our history and allowing other people to write our history. Now, there's so, there are so many stories out there, so many stories to tell. In my books, I have 16 pages of index. Those 16 pages cover the people and the events that appear in the books. And those 16 pages, each page has two columns. And so I can't even begin to remember half of what's in the book. There's so much there. There's so much to discover about our history, so much to be proud of. But I wish to make just two very basic points. Although the book contains the good, the great, the amazing, it also contains the bad and the ugly. I'm not going to pretend that we don't have our tyrants, our dictators. I'm not going to pretend that we don't have our own Jack the Rippers in the community. And so it's an honest appraisal of our history. But also, I mentioned Alice Seeley and her photographs that uncovered the atrocities being committed in the name of King Leopold II. Alice Seeley was a white woman. And there are a few, not many, but there are a few white people in the book who had a direct or indirect effect on the wider black community. Now, sometimes that effect was negative. So I do look at the madness that is the Ku Klux Klan. I do look at Enoch Powell and his Rivers of Blood speech. But then there are other individuals who I place rightly into a context such as William Wilberforce and his efforts as a politician to help end enslavement in the British Empire. So although 99% of it looks directly at the black community, there are other people outside of the community that had a positive or negative effect on our community. What was the best thing about the work, research and writing? Well, as I said, the best thing was that voyage of discovery. It was just amazing to discover people up there like Imagwali, who was one of the founding fathers of the Internet, to discover Amilcar Cabral. Now, the BBC, they did a worldwide vote of academics, historians. And the simple question was, who was the greatest leader in history? And that included looking at the pharaohs of Egypt, the Caesars of Rome. That included people like Elizabeth I, Winston Churchill, Abraham Lincoln, rulers from right across the globe. When the votes came in, Abraham Lincoln, 
and Elizabeth I, they came in joint fourth with 4% of the vote. Churchill came in third with 7% of the vote. In second place was a black man born in Cape Verde who grew up in Guinea-Bissau called Amilcar Cabral with 25% of the votes. Now, as far as I'm aware, and when I've spoken to dozens and dozens of people, I would say less than 1% has ever even heard of Amilcar Cabral, but he came in second with 25% of the vote as the greatest leader in history. And so that's just one of so many stories that really blew my mind and made it all worth all worthwhile. Because on the flip side, there were stories which left me in tears, which left me devastated, which left me crushed. Um, and what, what, what I mean about that is W.E.B. Du Bois writing for the Crisis magazine. The Crisis magazine was the, the main newspaper, as it were, for the NAACP, National Association of the Advancement of Colored People. He compiled a list of all the lynchings that had taken place over the previous 50 or so years. And at one point he writes in detail, horrific, horrendous detail of a young man named Sam Hose. Now I do not recount in my book what happened to Sam Hose, but I do say to people, it is important we know just how ugly, how brutal, how vicious parts of our history have been. And as a result, just how amazing we as a people are to have overcome that, to have achieved everything that we have achieved. And I say to people, here is where you find that particular story. But if you are going to read that story, find your metaphorical glass of whiskey. Make sure you've got a con strong constitution and that you're ready to read it. Because what they did to Sam Hose defies anything I've ever come across. It's brutal beyond belief. And so you have the juxtaposition, these wonderful achievements, achievements against all odds, and then having to face the horror that many people did have to face. Some succumbed to it, other people overcame it, but it's all part of our history. It shaped us. And you know, a lot of people are talking about the trauma, the legacy that we as a people have. And there's nothing you can do about that. I mean, you can't go back in some time machine and rewrite all of that. We are a product of our past. But what you can do is create a balance, a narrative, where a lot of the beauty, a lot of the light that was hidden, kept in the shadows, is teased out and allowed to come centre stage. And so, yeah, there are some amazing moments and some low moments, but 
like the Jews talking about the Holocaust, they recognize the importance of understanding those low moments and celebrating those achievements. What parts of the books are you proudest of? Parts of the books? It started out as simply capturing a whole series of people and events. Now, those people could be effectively capturing the history of the blues, the history of jazz, the history of reggae music, the history of gospel music, um, leading lights in the world of R&B and soul music. And that, 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 that was brilliant. But as I was cataloging all of that and much more, I didn't always think about my style of writing. And that's something, as I looked through the book and looked back at the book, I felt quite proud about. I'll give you an example. Little Rock, Arkansas, where you had the nine children trying to get into Little Rock High School. That's found on September the 5th. Please allow me just to read this. Elvis Presley topped the charts with All Shook Up. Sam Cooke, romantically crooned, you send me. Fats Domino sang about Blueberry Hill. And Jerry Lee Lewis excited the crowd with a whole lot of shaking going on. For music, 1957 was a great year in the United States. Unfortunately, 1957's America had another story, an ugly, raw story that revealed the ever-present fermenting bile of racism. A group of school children, teenagers, would be known, would become known as the Little Rock Nine. The Nine had been carefully selected to integrate Little Rock Central High. The school opened in 1927. The school in Little Rock, Arkansas, USA, had a white roll call of 1,900. It was getting ready to integrate black students. The state capital was to witness extraordinary scenes that would horrify the nation, revealing the unmistakable truth of America's educational apartheid. And when I, when, when I read that, and you may think, wait a minute, you wrote it. How come you had to read it? Because <laughs> I was so busy doing the research and the writing, I didn't sit back. Well, I obviously did, but I wasn't conscious. And I thought, wow, that actually reads quite well. I was quite, I was quite pleased in, in, in how I put pen to paper. Please bear with me as I, as I read about um, an, an, another character. This, this is um, found in, and it, looking at November the 16th. One of Dr. Martin Luther King's inner circle and his trusted Lieutenant Hosea Williams was born on January the 8th in 1926. His blind teenage mother died in childbirth when Hosea was 10. He accidentally bumped into his father, blind Willie Wiggins, but they had no relationship. He was raised by his maternal grandparent in Georgia in the USA. At 13, William was threatened with lynching and had to escape 
leaving home and the town, having befriended a white girl. During World War II, William served in an all-black unit. Under attack in France, he was the sole survivor of a group of 13. Being transported by ambulance, the vehicle he was in was hit. Again, William was the only survivor. He spent 13 months recovering in a British hospital. Back in the United States, William dressed in his uniform, was seen taking a drink from a whites-only fountain at a bus station in America, in America's Georgia. The Purple Heart recipient was badly, badly beaten by a gang of white thugs and left for dead. In the hospital, they feared the patient would not survive. The only hospital prepared to take the black victim was an army veterans hospital over 100 miles away. William spent eight weeks in recovery, at times wishing that Hitler had won the war before being released. And that's just sort of the opening section looking at Hosea Williams. And this is before he becomes Martin Luther King's right-hand man, his lieutenant, and becomes famous playing his part in the civil rights struggle. And you think, wait a minute, wait a minute, wow, there's this huge backstory that most people would never discover. And um, yeah, so I, 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 was, I was really pleased with, with those parts of the book, revealing a hitherto little known, not unknown, little known backstory. Simon, you have over 30 years experience in the educational field. You taught at Winchester University. So what I want to know is, have you been able to get your books in an educational institution, such as, you know, universities or schools, etc.? Well, I got a phone call from the School Library Association, which recommends books for all the schools in the UK. And they were pleased to tell me that they would be recommending the books in the next week, literally in the next week, for all the schools in the country. Now, that's only a recommendation. And we recognize that we are in a particularly difficult period where there's a cost of living crisis, where the school budgets are being squeezed. And um, we know that we're running into double digit inflation. So whether the schools will be able to afford the books because something will have to give. And I fear that building up their library will not be the priority in the schools. But nonetheless, when I am speaking at a variety, have been speaking at a variety of events, when I have been presenting my books, many teachers, including head teachers, have bought the books. Following that, they've invited me in to talk in their schools, primary and secondary. And hopefully, slowly but surely, the books are getting out there. With the demise of what used to be the local education authority and the replacement of the um, academies and the academization of education, it's very difficult to roll out a book to 
the schools as a whole in the way that the School Library Association has been able to. So when you contact the Times Education Supplement, they no longer review and recommend books. And so schools have accepted it. I was invited very recently to go and talk at Manchester University. I have been invited and will be giving a talk at Imperial College. But there's no guarantee that all of the schools will either have heard of the books or have the finance to take the books on board. But next month, on October the 14th, I have contacted the 26 secondary schools in the borough of Enfield. And on that day, I have invited six form pupils, the teacher, head teacher, the head of sixth form, the history teachers, the teacher in charge of pastoral care, assemblies, inclusion and diversity along to come and hear me speak and to look at the books. So it is a rolling program, a continuous program. And I have made huge amount of progress in a very short time. The books came out in January and things are moving forward in leaps and bounds. But for every two, three steps forward, there's often a very huge, gigantic step back. And for all the doors that I'm continuously knocking on, some doors stay firmly shut, although I must admit several doors have surprised me and opened wide. So I am trying to get the books out there, raise awareness of the book's existence. And um, yeah, it's just a continuous, it's just a continuous rollout program. Well, we're coming to the end of this interview. So very briefly, can you just give us your final comment and then remind the listeners the title of your books, your name and where they can purchase your books from? Right. Um, I, I, I'll start with the books. The books can be bought online through Amazon, WH Smith, Waterstones. You can go to most bookshops and they will be able to order the books for you. The books are called History Through the Black Experience. The author, myself, Simon Hudson, that's all you need to type in if you're going to Amazon. You can also get them direct from myself and you will save yourself, I would say, at least on the combined purchase, you will save yourself at least £5 if you've got them direct from me. And you just simply contact me on my email. That's rsimonhudson at talktalk.net. R-S-I-M-O-N-H-U-D-S-O-N at talktalk.net. And I have been um, posting out books to a variety of individuals who have chosen to purchase the books from me using that 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 simple method. But um you, you can even get the books if you're residing across Europe in America, they're available on Amazon, as well as through Barnes and Noble in America. And and when I say America, that also includes Canada, as well as Central America and the Caribbean. 
So the books are available on quite a few different platforms. I want to leave you with a quote from, I guess, Oscar Wilde. Experience is the word we give to our mistakes. And one of the great mistakes of history has been to allow other people to write our history and to not take our history back and to therefore embrace and have control over our past, informing where we are today and guiding us towards our future. Thank you. I am now joined by lovely Lundy, who is the author of the book called Feel, Heal and Enjoy. Please introduce yourself to the listeners on The Black Book Show. Hi, my name is Lovely Lundy. I am a poet and author, and I'm also a mother to an amazing three-year-old son, Cairo. I also work for Intel. I've been working in my career for about 11 years now, uh, and I'm just so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Okay, so let's go on to talk about your book, Feel, Heal, and Enjoy. Please, can you give an overview of the book? Yes. So Feel, Heal, and Enjoy is a collection of poetry. It's broken down into five categories, and it's it helps, well, it was created um, just as a way to connect people with emotions and just things that we deal with through everyday life. Okay, so and I want you to give the listeners a bit more insight into the book that you've written. So can you, I mean, you mentioned that there's five sections in the book. Can you just give a brief summary of each section so we know a bit more about what's included in the book? Of course. Um, so one of the sections, it's family. It's a little more personal based off of my family. Um my son, my mom, my father, things of that nature. Um, then one of my probably most favorite categories is my black reality. That section is just a collection of poems of how I view the world as a black woman. I also have um, a category for empowerment as well as love and self-love. So is that, that's all the five sections, yeah? Yes. So one of the things that um, you mentioned when I noticed you was talking about the sections is that one of the sections is about your family. Why did you feel it was important to, you know, include for you to include a section about your family in the book? I thought it was important to include a section about my family in the book because that's part of who I am. It's part of my growth, my development. Uh, my family is literally the staple of my being. So I thought it was important to kind of get a more in-depth uh, understanding of who I am through my family. What was it that inspired you to, to write the book, Feel, Heal, and Enjoy? The inspiration comes from my son. I wanted him to be able to see me in a light other than just 
his mom, um, I wanted him to see me in the light as a dream chaser or a dream getter. Uh, I've always enjoyed writing poetry. However, I never did anything with it. It originally just started off as a coping mechanism and eventually just turned into this book. So, you know, you mentioned what inspired you was your son. Um, how old is your son and what, what's the kind of relationship that you have with him? My son is three years old and I think we have just the most awesome <laughs> relationship. We have so much fun. Uh, when he was two years old, my son was diagnosed with ASD, which is autism spectrum disorder. Um, so we have been going through many different ways of learning and discovering together. Uh, he is the light of my life. He is funny. He is sweet. He is smart. Um, he just really puts a smile on my face every day and I'm so thankful for him. So who is this book aimed at and what is the overall message you want to tell your audience? I believe that this book is aimed at people who have found themselves possibly in difficult times, dark times. The book talks about from mental health depression, anxiety, to racism, colorism, love, encouragement. I believe that we all could uh, benefit from a little pick-me-up every now and then. So the message to my audience would be that we may look different, we may love different, and we may live different. But when it comes to how we feel, it's all the same. It really is. The way we react to emotion may be different, but that actual feeling of emotion, joy, pain, love, grief, it's, we all feel it the same. The title of your book is called Feel, Heal and Enjoy. What made you come up with that as your book title? I came up with the book title, Feel, Heal, and Enjoy. Uh, when I was a little girl, my mother used to have a quote. She says, the devil would come to steal, kill, and enjoy, and destroy. My apologies. So I wanted to create something where people could feel, heal, and enjoy. It's my own little personal uh, spin on positivity. Okay, and what is your favorite poem in the book and why? I don't have a specific favorite. I love all of my poems. Um, kind of just depends on what I'm feeling at the moment. But currently, the poem that I'm invested in now is called Stand Corrected. And that one has more of a personal touch um, because it's based on a conversation between me and another individual. Um, and that conversation was about colorism. Could you please read us that poem? Sure, I would <laughs> be honored to read that poem for you. Stan corrected. This guy comes to me and says, 
you are beautiful to be dark skinned. My reply, wait, are you implying that a beauty standard is based upon complexion? Because when I look at my reflection, trust and believe, I'm not stressing. I wear my dark skin as a badge of honor, a blessing. This guy looks at me and says, why are you mad? That's a compliment. My reply, I'm confident that's no compliment and I'm second guessing your consciousness because the consequence for such incompetence is the revocation of your common sense. I had to explain how I was once refused a date, not based on sight, but type, because my skin color wasn't light. Yet I didn't fuss or fight, I just wished him a good night because one of us was wrong, I knew I was right. And arguing would have been an unnecessary plight. You see, he wasn't too bright. Besides, arguing with the fool is like feeding a parasite. Then he tells me, you're blowing it out of proportion. I told him, tell that to the girl who was bleaching her skin, trying to fit in, changing her exterior to feel prettier within. He said, she's just confused, you know. I looked at him with a side eye and replied, no, you're delusional. This isn't new, you know, but I shouldn't expect you to know. So many brothers like you refuse to know. You pick and choose the truth so you don't think it's unusual that your viewpoint has been misconstrued. He looked at me dead in my eyes and said, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. The look on his face implied he'd never made a statement more bolder. I said, that's true. But look back at our history. Complexion has been used as a weapon to divide us consistently. And if you have a type, well, that's your prerogative. But don't base that type off of a brainwashed cognitive. With sincerity, he apologized and said, I never thought of it from that perspective. I told him, don't be sorry. Just stand corrected. Wow, that was brilliant. I like the words, but also the way you read it. The poem I like in your book is called Living with Monsters. Could you also read that poem for our listeners? Sure, I can. That is actually one of the first poems I recited um, in public to anyone. And it's also another one that I really hold dear. Living with Monsters. Calmness, stillness, and peace of mind seems to evade me each and every time. Feels like I'm running, but my feet won't hit the ground. Looks like I'm screaming, but I never make a sound. Could I be dreaming? This can't be my reality. Hell of a nightmare, monsters living inside of me. Depression, second guessing. <sighs> it's my anxiety. Strips me bare and paralyzes me. Head underwater. I can barely breathe. I don't recognize myself. Only fragmented pieces of me. Only an empty shell casing of the person I used to be. Only the shadows are left to accurately identify me. I can't stay in this dark place. This prison wasn't designed for me. So I grasp at the light, the hope, and the possibility. I have scars and bruises. The battle hasn't been kind. But as difficult as it has been, I'm choosing me each and every time. So I'm not waiting for the monsters to consume me. I am breaking free. And I'm sure calmness, 
stillness and peace of mind are on the other side waiting for me. Lovely. What was going on at the time or in your mind when you wrote that poem called Living with Monsters? So I wrote that poem actually last year and I've been going through a bit of depression with anxiety and ever since I had my son. So it started off as postpartum depression and it kind of never went away. I was in a dark place and I sat down and decided to write and I pretty much told myself, I need to be able to release this. I need to be able to accurately describe how I feel because it always helps me feel better. That's what poetry has always been to me, for me, a coping mechanism with my, for my emotions. So I was in a really dark place and I just needed an outlet. And so this poem, I believe that I wrote this poem in about 35 minutes to be exact. Most of my poems are about, has taken me about 30 minutes to an hour to write. It's just a quick release and then I kind of storm away. <laughs> okay, so you mentioned earlier that your son is three years old um, and you just stated you started getting depression since you had your son. Um, but earlier you stated you had a great relationship with your son. So what is it that really sparked the 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 depression that you got since the you know the, the the birth of your son i think it's mostly um a natural thing you know so many women after childbirth kind of fall into this depression and it's not really the relationship that you have with your son but it's more so like a hormonal or chemical imbalance within the body and it's just Sometimes it's just sadness that you can't really control. Um, reaching out, it took a lot of strength to me, for me to re reach out because at one point I had no idea what was happening. <laughs> I would be emotional. I'd be crying. I'd feel some type of way. And I had no idea what was happening. A lot of people at their childbirth don't really speak up as much about that side of childbirth it's like you have a baby and oh it's a beautiful baby and you want to love on this baby but a lot of the times they don't talk about that side of after you have childbirth and it's it can take a toll on you mentally and emotionally it really can so what kind of mechanism and support that you had did you have to get through the, um this i mean was writing therapeutic for you Writing was very therapeutic. Writing has always been therapeutic for me ever since I was 12 years old. It's always been a positive outlet, but I've always been able to have friends to talk to, family. I was really supported when I realized that I was depressed. I, you know, I reached out to friends and I was accepted and with open arms. So it was a, a safe space was created for me to just feel how I feel. And I've had a lot of help working to overcome it. And it's a daily thing, but um, it's one of those things that sometimes you deal with and sometimes, you know, you have to find an outlet. You have to find strength to keep going. And my son, honestly, he is that strength. He shows me every day that 
you know, you have another day. <laughs> you have another day to be better. And he is such an amazing and such a joy to be around. You know, when a lot of people get depressed, a lot of people go on antidepressants or forms of medication or, you know, find some people even might even result to alcohol or other kind of bad habits. Now, did you go on any um, antidepressants or any kind of substances or like why you was, you know, depressed at the time? And um, did you just, was you just able to overcome your depression naturally? At one time, um, I did what I was prescribed um, antidepressants and I really just didn't like the way it made me feel. It didn't work for me. Um, and I know not everyone is the same. It helps some people. Um, just it wasn't a option for me. Um, I just didn't like the way I felt while taking them. Um, for me, I used another outlet, you know, writing was a positive outlet, but also therapy. A lot of the times I needed to face what was going on. A lot of the times there was a root cause to how I was feeling. So talking helped a lot. Talking to my therapist and meditation, that has helped a lot as well. Name something that you um you think is interesting about the book that you've written. The interesting thing about the book that some people may like may think like what um i do not know all of the poems by heart <laughs> uh, and i know it's like well you wrote them how do you not know them but a lot of the times um when i would write i would write this poem just as a release of information a release of you know how i'm feeling and i type it up and then i'd store it in this big binder because the book was never actually intended to be a book. My poetry was just a coping mechanism for me to kind of help deal with life. So I would just um, type up a poem and I put it in this leather binder of mine and I wouldn't look at it again. A lot of the times I didn't get a chance to really reread a lot of my poems until I had the idea to create the book. And as I was rereading the poems of which poems I wanted to go in the book, it really gave me an opportunity to sit down and revisit a lot of those emotions and see the growth of from where I was at that moment to where I am now. Now, you mentioned earlier, I believe it was 35 minutes you said it took you to write one of your the poem Living with Monsters. And is that is that correct? Yes. That if I'm, that's a very, very quick time to write a poem. Um, did, did, did the other poems take you as quick or how long did they take you, the other poems to write? They do. Um, they are pretty quick. Usually a poem is finished within 35 minutes to an hour. Um, that's not including, you know, if I take the time to, you know, edit and revisit, but the guts of the poem from beginning to end is usually created within 35 minutes to an hour. A lot of the times I sit down and I try to focus on how I feel. And then I try to channel that feeling into the poem. When did you first start getting to writing poetry? I first started writing poetry at the age of 12. Um, <laughs> it was about silly things like boy crushes in school. 
Uh, it wasn't until I was about 14 that I, my poetry changed and I started writing more, what I would believe more impactful poems. Okay, so we're coming to a conclusion of the interview. So please, can you give us your final comments and tell the listeners again your name, the title of your book, and where your book can be purchased from? Of course. My final comment would be, I hope that this book finds whoever needs it. Um, sometimes you have dark days, and even for myself, not every day is rainbows and sunshine. Sometimes I have to go through and read a poem of two for encouragement. So I hope that whoever may need this book, it finds its way to them. Um, and I hope that they honestly feel, heal, and enjoy every second of it. My name is Lovely Lindy, and thank you for this opportunity. You can find my book on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, and you can also get it at my website, www.lovelylundy.com. Thank you very much, Lundy. Thank you very much, Lovely Lundy, for joining us on the Black Book Show with McConnell Sankofa. Thank you. I am now joined with Julian Mims, who is the author of the book called Sandy Black and the Seven Giants. Welcome, Julian, to the Black Book Show. Please introduce yourself to our listeners. Again, thank you for having me here to, to, to speak on, on your radio show. I'm Julian Mims. I'm the author of Sandy Black and the Seven Giants. Uh, I'm happy to be here, happy to talk about the book. Okay, Julian. So tell us a little bit more about yourself, you know, who you are, what you do. If there's anything interesting that we, could, we should probably know about you, just, um, yeah, just give us a little bit more background into who you are. Uh, I am currently living in Nassau, the Bahamas. I'm, I'm originally from Los Angeles, California. Uh, moved here in 2015. Um, grew, grew up as one of four children, my parents, my father was a college football coach, college American football. So we moved a lot. It was almost like being in the military for the most part, uh, as I grew up. So we moved from place to place. You had to, you had to, uh, learn to adapt and it, it kind of made you grow up a little bit quicker than a normal kid living in one spot forever. Um, but in that came watching a bunch of TV shows and, and just having fun with, with family and friends and whatnot. And, uh, uh, that's, that's the gist of where I'm from in a sense. Um, so let's go on to talk about your book called Sandy Black and the Seven Giants. Please. Can you give us an overview of the book? The book is a fantasy fairy tale based off of obviously from the, from the, from the title Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. Um, I tell people sometimes, uh, to, to gain the scope of the story, it's, it's a little bit of Lord of the Rings with a little bit of uh, Chronicles of Narnia with the, with the story from Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. So you got, you got the problems from Lord of the Rings. So they're serious, big, epic problems in a sense. And you've got this world that's like the Chronicles, Chronicles of Narnia. So everything's alive and you can talk to animals and plants and stuff like that. And it's following a general outline of the story from Snow White and the Seven Doors, obviously with some tweaks to make it my own. Now, I know your book has got 20 chapters, so you can't talk about all of the chapters here. But <laughs> can you give us a summary, you know, of 
some of the different chapters that are included in your book. And so we just know a bit more about, you know, the content of Sandy Black and the Seven Giants. Obviously, you're going to start out with Sandy with her mother. Her, 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 her mother's going through some things and um, um, is sick at the time. And she tells her some things about her father that she didn't know because she, she didn't grow up with her father. So uh, before her mother passes away, she t- lets her father, know, her, her, her daughter know that uh, her dad's coming to, coming to get her. And it's kind of a shock. And um, after her mother passes, time passes. We get into the next chapter, a new beginning. And uh, an envoy from her father comes to pick her up. And he shows up with a dragon to prove the fact that he's from where he said he's from. And he has to take her to a place that is only available while children sleep and dream. Because that's the only time that doorway is open. And she comes into a new, she gets taken and whisked away into a fantasy new world that she's never seen before um, after being alone ultimately in, in, in the world because it was just her and her mother living together and starts her adventure in, in Moria where uh, it's this giant kingdom with this beautiful world and all new stuff and she has to adapt to the newness of it, not to mention the fact that she's going to meet her father for, for in her eyes the first time who she's never known growing up and it's it's taking in all that stuff. It's taking in everything as she goes and um, meeting all these new people and the, the, the different attire and the different, um, just all the differences. It's so, it's so contrary to what she came from for the most part. Um, obviously we're going from that into a giant ball that sets up him introducing her to the entire kingdom and the excitement she has of that and, meeting a, a prince from another kingdom that, that catches her eye and they, they uh, hit it off right away into the pace of the story quick, quickly picks up from there to the problem, the big issue. There's a, there's a, there's a battle far off with the, with, with a neighboring kingdom that's friends with his, with King Black's kingdom, her father, and he has to go away and support. And she's left there with uh, the head manservant, David, to watch over her, but something doesn't feel right. And so he, he's been given orders to send her back through the portal back to her world. If something goes wrong and obviously everything falls apart there. And she ends up after uh, a scuffle and some fights in the forest alone. And she kind of gets directed by um, some new characters that she meets a tree and some, some fireflies and some things it's raining and it's rough and she's, she's going through it. And she she embarks on this journey with these new friends in this new world uh, to meet her new uh, her ultimate protectors who happen to be giants uh, while all of the rest of the story unfolds around her. um, And we we see it gets revealed, basically, who the uh, the, what the evil plot is to uh, destroy everything and take everything from her father as well as get rid of her. So we, we follow that story all the way through until obviously it's a, it's a fairy tale type situation. So there's going to be a happy ending, but there's a lot you have to go through in order to get to that happy ending. Um, it, it's, it's a fun up and down ride, I'd say. So what's your favorite part of the book? Honestly, my favorite part of the book is that it's all us, all people of color. It's all, it's, we don't see us in this space in the, in the fantasy folklore fantasy. Everyone grew up with, with fairy tales, everyone grew up with uh, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. Everyone grew up with Sleeping Beauty. Everyone grew up with all these 
uh, Beauty and the Beast, and we're not represented in any of that. And so uh, my favorite part was putting our culture, our spin, uh, our way of talking along with uh, uh, just just our our vibe, so to say. Through the story. Can you tell us more then about, you know, the process of writing this book and how it came into being? Truthfully, it was a it was a screenplay idea. It was a movie idea. I had originally written down. I, I've, I've always come up with stories since I was a little kid. Um, and it was originally a movie idea. And the industry kind of slowed down a little bit back in the back when I first started this. This has been a 10 year process. This has been a journey just writing it and getting it to the point to where it's out. And um, I was told, hey, you know, industry slowed down. You need to take some of your ideas and try to either make them into books or short stories or something else so that you can get them out there so people can see them. And so this was like the smallest idea that I had, quote unquote, uh, to try to put into that form. And so I undertook the, uh, the task of writing the book for the very first time in my life. And, and uh, I drew from life experience and everything that I've ever watched and seen and uh, just how I would envision uh, a fairy tale playing itself out uh, with us involved. When did you start writing this book um, and did you always want to be a writer? I would say first off, it wasn't necessarily that I always wanted to be a writer. I, th I think I just had the ability to, to use my imagination. Um, so I've always been able to come up with stories and create stories and been creative on that level. Uh, if it was, if it was stories or if it was poetry or if it was whatever it was, I was always leaning towards being creative on that side i started this book in actually christmas day of 2009 was the first time i put a pad to paper pencil to paper and started coming writing down my ideas i had talked to my mom about it briefly and come up with the the the, the title and the and, and the, the rough outline of the story and then obviously my mom was telling me basically hey you know all these stories that you come up with and all these ideas are great but it doesn't mean anything unless you're going to finish them and so uh, it was my, my time at that point to uh, prove to myself and to my mom at that time that I could finish them. So I, I, I started in the, uh, like I said, Christmas day of 2009, after coming home from a family function, I went up to my room and literally just started uh, putting, putting, putting this together. Who is this book aimed at and what do you want people who read the book to take away from it? I would say, honestly, everywhere, everyone. It's a, I guess you could say it's young adult, but I've had, I've had uh, 12 year olds read it and love it. I've had, had adults read it and love it. I, there's no one I've had so far that's read it that came back and said, oh, this is utterly awful. And I just can't stand it and you need to go rewrite it. I've had everyone who's read it thus far has truly enjoyed the journey and enjoyed the experience. And ultimately that's what it was meant for. It was meant for whoever reads it. It's, it's, it's an escape. It, it was, it was really written for you to be able to uh, have an experience. That's what we have movies for. That's what we have books and all these stories and things for you go to the movies to have an experience. You go to the movies to sit down, watch something and allow it to teleport you and take you someplace else. And this story was purposed for that and for, uh, people of color to be able to see themselves in these situations and see themselves in a story 
that, that represented us. Is there something you feel that makes your book unique compared to other books in your genre? Now, I know you've spoken earlier about, you know, um, the, you know the characters being of, of colour. Um, but I mean, away from that, do you think there's something, you know, in the story that you feel that makes your book unique compared to other books by other authors written in the same genre? I would say my theming. So generally speaking, in a fairy tale, there's always a fairy godmother that's taking care of stuff or saving the day. There, there, there's always... A, a love interest that that saves the day and i i didn't want to do that because that was a little too cliche and a little bit too normal and so uh it was real important to me to make sure that a, a lot of the theming was uh about a father being responsible and being a father and so throughout the entirety of the story uh the story is really about a family coming together and a father being responsible for his child, being responsible for uh, who, who he loves the most, because that's the, that's his last tie to Sandy's mother is, is, is the child that, that he and the mother had and him doing everything within his power and even more at times, in a sense, to make sure she was safe, to make sure in the end she's protected. And I wanted to make sure that that was a constant theme that she was a constant focus for him, that he doesn't just disappear and she figures it out on her own and it ends up being just the whole girl power thing. We have a we have a lot going on in the world today and a lot of it happens to fall back on us as men and fathers aren't being responsible. So the theme in this book is him being responsible, him being responsible and, and, and doing what he has to do to make sure that his daughter is, is safe. I'm speaking with Julian Mims on the Black Book Show. Julian Mims is the author of the book called Sandy Black and the Seven Giants. What I want to know now, Julian, do you plan to do another book to add to the story? Is this part of a series? Actually, that's been a uh, that's been something in the last, I'd say, couple years of finishing this this whole ride up that. Uh, has occurred to me and, and, and opened up. And I, I do, I, I actually have an outline for uh, a couple more books in this series to expand on this universe, to expand on this world and to uh, keep Sandy moving along through her journey in this new place. Cause obviously this first book is very uh, uh, focused on events that happen quickly right now with Sandy as she first gets there. And you don't get to see the rest of the world. You don't get to see the rest of the wor- the story. And there's so much more to uncover and to unlock and to see with how these people got here. I mean, sometimes people, you watch a movie you, or you read a book and you see something that's fantasy or, 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 or uh, fairy tale oriented. And uh, you see these people in this world and you're wondering, okay, how'd they get there? How did it all start? Where did it all begin? And so I want to, expand more and go into that a little bit more to uh develop out the rest of the world so to say the rest of the history the rest of everything well well we're coming to an end of the interview so please julian can you give us your final comments and tell the listeners again the title of your book and where the book can be purchased well sandy black and the seven giants is a fantasy fairy tale folklore uh extravaganza if i can use that word right now it's it's meant for you to go on a ride and leave your 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 present space and enjoy yourself someplace else it's it's meant for you to sit there and see some some pieces of 
our history as well as uh, 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 fantasy made it made up along with it that, that that parallel both both sides and just meant for you to be able to sit back and read relatively quickly as well. It's not meant to be an arduous read. It's not meant to be something that you have to sit down and and uh, dig into over a few months. This is something you could actually read in a week's time and be completely fulfilled on. I, I wrote it almost like you'd write a uh, mini series or a TV show. So each chapter ends with a cliffhanger that leads you into the next chapter, almost like it's a ne- another episode. And um, as, as of right now, the, the book is available at truevinepublishing.org. And it will be available on my website, julianmims.com. Well, that's the conclusion of this section of the Black Book Show with myself, McConnell and Kofar, speaking with author Julian Mims.